is yours. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? It's Red Fence! It's Red Fence. Do your homework! Hi, Acton. Hi, George. I'm frustrated by too many subscriber-only posts <laughs> on Substack. Red Fems is free for the people. That's right. We aren't making a dime. We're just having fun. We're doing it for the love of the word. That's right. Of all the words. That's right. Of our own words. Mm-hmm. What are we doing today? We are talking because we believe gender is real. It really is real. And it really drives me insane when people who are fighting for the reality of sex also think that it helps their cause to discard gender. It just drives me crazy. I think I just hit my limit. Yeah. Yeah. We need to we need to redeem the word gender. And we'll why do you it. think we need to redeem it, Acton? Do tell. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have to rescue Ivan Illich's conception of gender because it's not really his idea. It's not new, and that's actually kind of the point. Like, what he articulated about gendered worlds is our common heritage. It's something so obvious and ubiquitous and fundamental that it went without saying until it began to be gutted at the hands of industrial capitalism and modern individualism. Illich wrote, I argue that there is a profound discontinuity between all past forms of existence and Western individualism, and this change constitutes a fundamental rupture. It consists primarily in the loss of gender. No, and I think I said this to you a few weeks ago when we were texting, we were talking about this. I was comparing the death of God and the death of gender. You know, do you remember that? Like mm. when Nietzsche, Nietzsche declares, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? And his words were a lament, like right? Like a statement that our communal disbelief was this tragic moral crime beyond forgiveness, beyond penance, beyond repair, beyond good and evil. And part of Nietzsche's genius is that he was able to say out loud the horror of the modern human condition, that we're God killers, we're self-made orphans in a universe emptied of transcendence, and that's why modernity is embroiled in a meaning crisis. But God isn't the only thing of importance that we've killed. You know, gender is dead. Gender remains dead, and we have killed it. <laughs> Ivan Illich was this prophetic voice that articulated this tragedy that we have perpetrated against ourselves and against our children. Not the death of the plausibility of religion, but the death of the plausibility of the world of women and the world of men and how they coordinate with each other. And I'm convinced that the death of God and the death of gender are intimately related. You know, just as we can't understand ourselves as modern people without grasping the consequences of the demise of Christendom and the secularization of the West, so we can't understand ourselves as moderns without grasping the consequences of the dissolution of vernacular gender in the acid bath of industrial capitalism and individualism. And so however the word gender is being used today to refer to this internal felt sense of personal identity, that usage has nothing to do with what Illich was talking about. You know, today's gender identity is the epitome of expressive individualism. It can only exist because the ancient gendered worlds that Illich talked about were destroyed. It's like, I was thinking, it's like one of those murder mysteries where someone kills another person and takes their place and adopts their name. You know, it's creepy. It's very <laughs> it's <wrong>. creepy. <laughs> the word gender is being used to mean something antithetical to its original meaning. 
And so we've replaced God with a culture of consumerism and the cult of self-actualization. And we've also replaced the ancient communal folk dance of gender with self-obsessed, navel-gazing personal identity and individual expression. And I don't know how or if it's even possible to kind of resurrect the experience of those primeval gendered worlds, you know, the world of women and the world of men since forever. But the least that we can do is to notice the trade-offs that were made in modernity and to take the time to grieve what we've lost, to acknowledge the rupture, as Illich calls it, and between everything our ancestors took for granted and our current state of bereavement, right? Like at the very least, gender demands a eulogy. Mm. Um, Though I hope that by the end of this episode, we can actually be optimistic about the future and not just nostalgic for the past. But I think first comes grief, then comes hope. Um, But I think most people have no idea what we've lost. They just imagine this sexist patriarchal past that we've you know, largely escaped from and this ever more equal future of progress to look forward to. You know, they don't know that modernity destroyed gender first for the sake of capitalism, and now it's out to destroy biological sex for the sake of personal freedom. You know, but I don't think that we should just sort of stand by while the concept of gender is turned in on itself like an ingrown toenail. I, we should not abdicate the word gender to transhumanists in an effort to preserve the meaningfulness and reality of biological sex. We need to rescue Illich's concept of gender to avoid faith in the religion of progress and to avoid historical amnesia. So I don't think we can let the original meaning of gender go down the memory hole. I second all of that wholeheartedly. It's <laughs> my love making go first. <laughs> You are exactly right that this modern anxiety about around the notion of gender is related to the larger meaning crisis in the West, and you were the one who ch- turned me on. I think we've already put this in the show notes. Let's do it again. Uh, yeah. John Brevecke's <laughs> series of, it's 51 hours, basically, mm-hmm. uh, of YouTube lectures called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And it really only, like, starts to pick up the heat around, like, episode 19. <laughs> you gotta hang in there. <laughs> it's a slow burn. <laughs> great though <laughs> increasingly i i really think that the loss of transcendence as a regular feature of social life and you know it doesn't necessarily matter whether you want to understand that given greater than as god or not the name and the sort of practice around it i'm not going to say that it's irrelevant or arbitrary but it's that thing whatever manifestation it takes yeah. this given greater than like there's something else beyond our individual experience that we get at when we're in this kind of collective relationship and collective practice. Yes. So this loss of transcendence has made it impossible for us to ex- understand and, and to accept limits. Yes. And gender really is, we're not going to you know beat around the bush about mm-hmm. this, it's obviously a structure of limits. All structures are limits. Mm-hmm. And gender is one of these. I mean, of course, a world of expressive individualism has no other way to interpret a limit as anything other than an anathema, which I might add, since I'm now teaching myself <laughs> New Testament Greek. In your spare time. Well, because I've decided to spend less time on Twitter and do something mm-hmm. more suitable with my time. So anathema has a really interesting etymology mm. in Greek. So in the Greek tran- translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's used to translate the Hebrew word harem, which I'm probably mispronouncing because I haven't gotten to the Hebrew yet, right? <laughs> it's used to indicate something, persons or objects set aside for sacrifice and thus banned from profane use <laughs> and dedicated to destruction, which is an interesting... We can't imagine this world, but in the case of religious wars, this would apply to the enemy and their cities and their possessions. They're named in this manner. And then in the New Testament, it comes to mean the disfavor of God, and then the early church comes to refer to extreme religious sanction 
for people, which we know is excommunication, yeah. or even doctrines, like things that were declared heretical. Right. Out of bounds. Right, or anathema. Mm-hmm. It's difficult for most modern people to understand a culture where these kinds of limits and these kinds of divisions make sense. Mm-hmm. Sacrifice, from the Latin, sacred making, right, means to make sacred. And mm-hmm. we don't really have that notion. Like this idea that you can make a thing, designate a thing as a status, and it totally changes your relationship to it. Mm-hmm. And that, so when that notion is missing from a culture, it's really no surprise that a word for curse comes to mean in everyday language something you hate or dislike. Uh-huh. The context of anything greater than oneself vanishes, and so any limit on the self is therefore perceived as a threat. I think it's really important to contrast the fragility of gender identity with the robustness of gender. Yeah. Gender springs naturally from reality. It was so obvious to our ancestors that nearly half of human languages reflect this idea. Mm-hmm. Gender identity, on the other hand, demands that reality be distorted and remade in its name. Mm-hmm. The rule of no debate from TQ activists exists because if you allow people to express themselves, it will be immediately clear that the vast majority of people do not believe in the postmodern creed that reality is just what we say it is. Gender identity is also a consumer product. Maybe the credo is you are who you say you are, but even the most casual adoption of a gender identity tends to be accompanied by the adoption of a style, a change of a wardrobe, a pronoun pin, up through the use of synthetic hormones and surgical alterations, some of which are so extreme that they can only be properly understood as medical abuse. Mm -hmm. Not to put too fine a point on it, but any woman who has been in close proximity to a penis knows that a surgeon cannot create one. (laughs) That's so true. I mean, it's an organ, as in it's organic to a process of development. Gender is just as organic. A woman who has her breasts or uterus removed is no less of a woman. Exactly. Because bodies don't work like that. Yeah. So this this is what I think gets lost when activists such as the UK advocacy group Sex Matters, tried to protect women from the alphabet cult by just talking about sex. Mm -hmm. While, of course, we need to preserve the notion of sex in law to talk about women, what we are actually seeking to protect is properly more called gender, the instantiation of sex in culture. Mm -hmm. We're not asking for people to acknowledge biological reality. I mean, we are, but that's not all we're doing. We're saying, let's make this real in culture. So, to say, as Helen Joyce has often done, that sex matters in public life in very few circumstances Mm -hmm. is a form of throwing out the baby with the Mm bathwater, because ultimately it is not sufficient to allow women separate prisons, shelters, sports, locker rooms, and bathrooms. Obviously, since all these things, these necessary things are now at risk, we have to fight for them. But the attitude behind the construction of this fight as being about the few places where sex matters belies Mm -hmm. the abandonment of gender in its true richness. Yes. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think Helen Joyce is amazing. She's right up there with, the, you know, Kelly J. Keene in my pantheon of women's rights campaigners. Mm-hmm. But she pretty much subscribes to the regime of sex attitude described by Illich. Mm-hmm. She believes that there are humans and they're divided into two types. Mm-hmm. Right? She, she doesn't really believe in the, from the beginning, men and women have an unavoidable, asymmetric, productive relationship to one another. So if we only fight for sex rights, we risk losing this basic social unit of organization where men and women often but not always self-organize with their own kind. This is already reality in Australia. Anti-discrimination law, heavy scare quotes, now in Tasmania actually prevent lesbians from gathering without men. (laughs) The Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Commissioner 
a person named Sarah Bolt, you can never assume anyone's a woman anymore, right? Yeah. Decided that a lesbian-only event would, quote, discriminate against biological men on the basis of sex and potentially constitute sexual harassment. In the words of Matt Osborne, who writes for The Distance, an excellent subsect to follow on this issue around the world, he says, he highlights, excluding a penis from a lesbian meetup is sexual harassment. That's crazy, because obviously, and to put this under the guise of anti-discrimination, it's just, it's upside down world. Yeah. It's clown world. No sense to me. It's crazy. And I think... We really should stop using the term... We should stop giving away the term for the people on the other side of this. We should call them sex deniers. We should call them sex deniers because gender identity just cedes the term to them, right? I'm increasingly inclined to think that the term gender critical has it all backwards. People who think sex is real and that it matters and that it needs to influence culture are actually pro-gender people. Yes. So why are we trying to disavow what is so powerful, so inevitable, so necessary, just because a tiny minority of folks have tried to co-opt the term as part of an identitarian label? Mm. We should reclaim the term gender for ourselves, because we know that gender is based on sex. Gender itself affirms the reality of sex. Yes. And simply say that so-called gender identity is merely sex denialism, which it is. That's great. I agree. All right. So, to sum it up here, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Gender is the instantiation of sexual dimorphism in human culture. It's not good or bad, it just is. And your mileage is going to vary depending on what time and place you live in. While it consists of boundaries and rules, it is not the elimination of individual difference or experience or preferences. It is a purposeful, productive separation. It is not the same as patriarchy or oppression or stereotypes. Here, here. Yeah, so what we're talking about now is not gender woo, which is a phrase we've used in other in other episodes. What we're talking about is social gender, or in Illich's words, vernacular gender, which is a nod to the fact that many language that in many languages nouns are either masculine, feminine, or neuter, and the way that nouns are gendered is a local cultural decision, not a universal. So gender is a name for localized social practices that stem from sexual difference. If sexual difference is a universal biological fact, distinguishing males from females, then gender is how a people, a gens in Latin, communally structures their lives around that ineradicable difference. So gender involves a clear division between what men and women do, say, and see. Gender's opposite is anything unisex, universal, or generic, anything androgynous and interchangeable, which means that globalization and industrialization are corrosive to gender. Gender can't be mass-produced, big-boxed, or one-size-fits-all. So I called in to Kelly J. Keen's show, you Turf did. Talk Tuesday, and I actually haven't really been able to listen. I listened to, like, the first half of it, and I just couldn't go any further. You did great. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you did really good. But it was really interesting, because I think maybe I was expecting a more sympathetic... Not from her, necessarily, because I think she has her lane... Yeah. And she's, she stays in it for, she's a very down-to-earth practical person. Mm-hmm. And I think she knows that it's not going to buy her anything to go on an intellectual adventure regarding this word. Yeah. But I think reality defenders are interested in rejecting gender because, sadly, this important debate is taking place entirely within a world that rejects transcendence. Yeah. So one of the quotes that I think I put in the reading, uh, in the homework, do your homework! 
was Billboard Chris's line, two sexes, zero genders, infinite personalities. And somebody actually, when I read, because you know on YouTube, you can replay the live chat. Yeah. So I noticed when I was beginning of my call with her, somebody just put that line into Mm -hmm. the chat. Mm -hmm. And it's very telling now upon reflection because it really illustrates rather perfectly that there, while there exists a reality that of two sexes that um, gender defenders agree on, so now we're calling the people on our side with language they don't want. So this is great. But we're going to do it anyway. Um, there is no longer any communal construct to contain it. Yes. So it's like they want to... They, they think you can go straight from biology to personality. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. It's pure individualism. Yeah. Right? Which means it is a world evacuated of all functional stable meaning. Gender being a universal, although of course highly localized and thus incredibly variable... Uh, expression of stable meaning. Our modern world seems to have forgotten the need to balance individual and group interest. Mm -hmm. Everything, including group interest interest claims, have been subsumed by identity claims. And I think these kind of claims hinder social function. Group interest claims are just groups based on identity now, on identity characteristics. Progressives talk of LGBTQ and BIPOC. They They no longer talk of the poor. They don't talk of the working class anymore. Even when the left talks about, say, the homeless, it refuses to see the root problem as one of social disintegration. Mm -hmm. But it it instead believes that if the state were to provide everyone with a place to live, things would be fine. As if it is the material possession of the individual that creates social integration, rather than vice versa. Mm -hmm. Social integration contributing to the material safety of everybody. Mm -hmm. I read a heartbreaking story recently in a local paper where they interviewed a man who was homeless because he lost his house after he could no longer work. He was a mason for many years, and he'd really run his body into the ground because that was very physical work. And now he needs a double knee replacement, and he can't afford it, and he lost his house, and he had less than 40 k to go on his mortgage, which is Aww, like... I mean, there's awful. so many wealthy people in this country who could write a check and never miss that money. Yeah. Um, mm. So it's desperately sad to see someone who has always worked hard end up with not even a roof over his head. Mm-hmm. But this kind of fragility will always exist. Indeed, it will be the norm Mm -hmm. if we think of each individual as the necessary provider for himself or herself as a wage laborer. Yeah. Because in this model, a father who puts his daughters through college, which is what this man says, he lives on the street instead of with one or both of his daughters. What? I know. Right? And, but, you know, you... Too many feminists misunderstand what care really is. They think men are free because they are in the market and women are oppressed because we are in the home. But the market isn't freedom. It's a very precarious form of dependency. And the political right gets this wrong all the time, too. They confuse the means, limiting the role of government, for the ends, small-scale community reliance. Mm -hmm. They rail against the evils of big government because they are a lot of these people who run the party are greedy capitalists. But whether they know it or not, one message of the Bible seems to be that humans are capable, under certain conditions, of building prosperity through small-scale communal inter, inter, communal interreliance. And if you don't have this, you have homeless people. Right. We seem to be forgetting, we seem to be working to forget that families can do and have done everything that is anything in human culture. Mm. The family and the weak created the world we now know. <laughs> There's a it, lot to that. <laughs> it is ultimately, I suspect, a fundamental psychotechnology, to yeah. use John Verbecki's term, yeah. for our very species. So if you think that 
the state can substitute for the family, you're gonna, like, history, just, like, read any history book and you'd be wrong. In mm-hmm. fact, totalitarian regimes, that's the first thing they do, is they undermine the family. Like, the entire basis of North Korea's culture is that you can't have any, you don't have any loyalty. Oof. Because basically, you're, you're, in, you're indoctrinated to report on your family, and when, you, and when you are convicted of, when you do something, a wrong thing, you, they punish your family. Oh. So you can't have any, you can't have any self-reliance. That's terrible. That's how they break you down. So I'm going to read from my new favorite website, which is a rather heretical but nonetheless fascinating discussion (laughs) of the meaning of the Bible. Okay, so he's talking about this balance. In the field of engineering, the term backlash or play describes the crucially important space between a machine's components, the space that allows one component to move independently from the next component it's connected to. This spatial tolerance or play is important because all work generates heat. But heat is always generated locally, which means that components expand at different rates within the machine. Mm. Without backlash, a machine would begin to seize as soon as it started to work. But with too much play, the machine would rattle apart under too much load. This means that the performance of a machine, and specifically its efficiency, is ultimately linked to the relative freedom of its components, which can't be too much, but also not too little. Mm. Humans are like atoms, but a society is like a machine. And the whole quest for the green lantern on Daisy's dock, that's a reference to the Great Gatsby, Mm -hmm. is about the quest for the perfect backlash between society's elements. Mm. The perfect combination of A, dependency and cooperation, and B, independence and freedom of its members. Mm. And that is, this this whole site is like a giant wormhole. (laughs) That is from an article called How Circumcision Created the Modern World. Show notes. (laughs) So, in short, gender is an essential structure that governed and determined this kind of cooperation, this balance between dependency and cooperation on the one hand and independence and freedom of its members. And we are a whole lot worse off in the aggregate without this kind of structure, in my not-so-humble opinion. (laughs) We are all radically insecure in a world where our security and happiness depend on either the market or the state with nothing in between. Mm It is community that gives us security, not the fake kind of community that you find on the internet based on identity labels, right. that where these communities don't actually share anything besides a label. And I think it is this stability that people are craving, and sex denialism is one rabbit hole that very vulnerable people go down in a search for community because they see no other models besides these identitarian, on, mm-hmm. mostly online communities. They don't mm-hmm. have any other notions. People want to be accepted for themselves, but these mantras of expressive individualism are incapable of building anything between real people. I think this realization is at the heart of my crisis of secular faith. While I don't want the state to tell me how to live, I can no longer endorse a political party that no longer believes that individual virtue and communal obligation are the foundation of prosperity. Services are not the answer. And Illich really opened my mind about this. Yeah. And the left seems to see services as the answer for everything, mm-hmm. which explains perfectly why they cannot see gender, because all they see is individuals and services. Yeah. That's a great point. I, I agree with you completely here that social gender as a connective tissue between people has become invisible in the modern world because we're all framed as individuals first and foremost, which is such a fiction. <laughs> 
you know, both the left and the right compensate for the loss of gender in different ways. Like you said, the left compensates with government services and the right compensates with the market. But however you slice it, that fundamental human need for community, for belonging, for care, for meaning, that is bought and paid for now. You know, whether that's through tax-funded services or whether it's through paying a therapist to be your friend, paying a daycare worker to watch your baby, paying a nursing home to watch your aging parents, or paying Netflix to give you stories to lose yourself in, right? The name of the game is outsourcing and compensation. It's turning a relationship into a job or a product rather than, as you said, individual virtue and communal obligation structured through gender. The original social network was not Facebook. <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> the original social network was a combination of family, neighborhood, and religious community that was governed by vernacular gender. And gender combined within itself limits and obligations, rules and duties of care, and lots of expectations, whether spoken or unspoken, about how one ought to behave that were sex specific. In this sense, gender is like a folk dance or like an English country dance. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen like Jane Austen movies featuring a ball, <laughs> right? Where the women are lined up on one side and the men are lined up on the other and, and each side knows the steps, the formalities, the courtesies involved in creating this beautiful pattern of gendered conviviality, right? It's, it's male and female set to music, right? Is what gender is. And you gave an analogy about society as a machine, about the parts you need to have play between them, right? Just enough space, but not too much space to properly function. And another analogy would be an organic one, that, that men and women compose different parts of a body, and the social patterns of gender form this connective tissue or the ligaments between the parts so that the body can move and live and function. And what happens if those tissues are severed, right? Like men and women don't suddenly disappear. Our biology is the same as it always was, but our ability to coordinate, to cooperate, uh, to jointly move with purpose is just destroyed. So communion gets replaced with competition and the dance becomes a rat race. And while I share a lot of fellow feeling with people like Helen Joyce and Kelly J. Keene and Maya Forstetter and others who are heavily focused on defending sex-based rights, I think a lot of that movement is blind to the ball. Right? Like to the need for the sexes to cooperate, for our communal need for a script so that men and women know how to behave and know how to treat one another. And even just saying it that way makes me realize that the conversation about the need for vernacular gender is the same conversation we've had before about the need for virtue. Right? Oh, yeah, they're intimately linked. Oh, yeah. And th the focus on defining and defending biological sex is all about facts, about science, but scientific facts aren't enough for us to live by. Right? Like we live by virtue. We live by poetry. We live in culture. We live in the interpretation of facts. And that's where the juiciness and the connective tissue of gender is. Like if, if all we do is defend biological sex, then we're going to end up with, in Illich's words, competing neuters belonging to two biological sexes. Right? And that sounds almost as bad to me as, as the new gender woo and identitarianism. So both of them exist within a competitive and individualistic frame. Both are still you do you without fostering social communion. So that's not much better. Yeah, you'll have the, you'll have, you'll, you, you'll take the men out of the women's prisons, but you still won't have a right to have a women-only event. Right. Because it will just be about, oh, you can't hurt anyone's feelings, you can never exclude anybody. Which is, I mean, if we walked, if we took a time machine back to, you know, I mean, it wouldn't have to go very far back before people would be like, what do you mean discrimination? <laughs> what do you mean feelings? Like, 
don't you understand that there's this world and that world? It's basic. <laughs> right. I mean, people wouldn't even understand the concept. Right. Yeah, I mean, and like we've talked about before, the, con- the constraints provide the possibility space. That's true with virtue. Virtue as the constraint that provides opportunity for good things to happen. And it's true with gender, that the, the structure between masculine and feminine, the distinction, provides then the possibility space for, for each of those worlds to look different from one another and to become something beautiful and interesting. Well, I was thinking the other day about how how gendered language... I mean, I think that the, the temptation for feminism is to look at gender as saying, oh, well, you're excluding certain people from certain ideas. And then I thought to myself, well, what if certain words need to be gendered because though, because one sex or the other has to have a, a more particular relationship with that word? Hmm. Like, take virtu, the root for mm-hmm. virtue. Like, that's exclusively associated, I think, with men, hmm. culturally, hmm. in, like, I want to... I'm. I should have reviewed this before saying this on the podcast, but (laughs) maybe those concepts have to be more formally associated with men because men have a different kind of need for Mm self-restraint. That's true. Because they're different. Yeah. So it's like, it's this, we're living in this sort of post hangover of feminism trying to write one problem in the wake of a problem they don't see. Yeah. I think I talk, I think we get to this later. Yeah. Um, That's a great way to say it. So can you say that again? Fixing one problem in the wake of a past problem they can't see. They want women to have a sphere of autonomy, but they don't realize that the market isn't a sphere of autonomy. In fact, the market was the marks, the dissolution of the original, you know, asymmetrical, asymmetrical cooperative spheres of opportunity. That's right. Where men and women did productive work and they did it without getting each other's way. Right. Without competing with each other. Without competing with each other. In fact, I mean, who wants to have a boss micromanage them? Ugh. Like, nobody wants to have be in a marriage, say, which is one example of a gendered, you know, relationship. Who Mm -hmm. wants to be in a marriage where, you know, you're constantly subject to the other person's self-second-guessing? No, you assign responsibilities. That's the joy of that kind of relationship. Yeah. Because you have that trust, and you can say... You do this part, I'll do this part. And everybody right. gets their little autonomy. Yeah. And everybody gets their little self-expression. That's and right. lots of stuff gets done. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's terrible when you when you don't do it well and you get in each other's way and you nitpick over each other about and, stuff. It's and terrible. Illich has these <laughs> wonderful parts in the book where he talks about the historical examples of this. Mm. It, they're, they're like one of some of the most fascinating vignettes about divorce rates going up. When oh. when men and women lost their gendered spheres, yeah, because they were getting like on the, each other. The gears are grinding, right? Mm-hmm. They're, the, the thing seizes up because right. they don't they don't know how to function together anymore. Okay, yeah. so we read one book for this episode because we decided to read one book <laughs> because we want to keep it very focused, and this book is perfect for Great. this. Yeah. So, what's the book? The book is called Self-Made Man, and it is about the author, Nora Vincent's personal social experiment to commit a travesty. Like, in the literal sense of the word, right? <laughs> That's right, travesty. Travesty comes from travestire, to dress as the other sex. All right. So. And, yeah. So, she she lived as a, as a man named Ned. I think... Not 100% of the time, but a lot no. of the time she for about 18 months. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. So, Nora Vincent, may she rest in peace, she was a journalist born in 68. She wrote a column for the Los Angeles Times as well as a column for the National Gay and Lesbian Magazine Advocate. Her work also appeared on New York Times and the Washington Post and lots of other places. But yeah, in 2006, she writes this memoir-style book called Self-Made Man about her 18-month experiment of living and dressing and presenting as a man called Ned, which was her childhood nickname. (laughs) And her alter ego was this intentional disguise for the purpose of information gathering. Um, she didn't ever want to be a man. She was never a transvestite in the sort of the formal sense. Like, and she never thought of herself as a transsexual. She didn't have gender dysphoria. She never took hormones. She never had surgery. Um, interestingly, though, there were definitely times during her stint where she was read by others as a gay man, which is kind of interesting. And she says that she never felt her femininity more than when she was trying to act like a man, which is also interesting. But so she was a woman, a butch lesbian, solid in her female identity, posing as a man in public social settings as an undercover journalist, which ironically takes a lot of balls. So now we say <laughs> take some serious ovaries. Take some serious ovaries. <laughs> no, the, 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 the gender defenders, as I'm now going to just call them, much to their chagrin, the gender defenders are really, like, that is definitely an expression I've heard. Really? <laughs> it, does, it doesn't work the same. <laughs> and but. why do you think that is? <laughs> So I'm just going to say it. I think it took balls. And even though she didn't have balls, she did it. (laughs) And she was deceiving people, right? I mean, it was a long con. And it troubled her conscience to do it because she was a good person. Because she wasn't a sociopath. That's right. (laughs) So usually by the end of each of her forays into one of the communities that she goes into posing as Ned, she typically ended up revealing the truth about herself because she hated lying to people, right? And... And she came, especially lying to people she came to care about, because she really formed relationships with these people. And so it was always very interesting to see the ways that the dynamic changed, or that it didn't change, like once people knew that she was actually a woman. The reveal was always a very, very interesting moment. So she wrote about her experiences in male-male relationships and in male-female relationships. So she joined an all-male bowling club. She joined a men's therapy group. She went to strip clubs. That was a rough chapter. Uh, She dated women. She worked as a door-to-door salesman. And she used her knowledge as a lapsed Catholic to live with monks in a monastery for a few weeks. And she ended up learning many fascinating things about gender and sex, about men and women, and about herself. And I thought it was beautifully written. She's quite a good writer. Oh, she is. She's very intelligent. It's an insightful book. And it's totally free of political BS. Well, it's early enough to be okay, uninfluenced yeah. by that. 2006, yeah. I mean, that's that's a lifetime away from where we are now. Yeah, isn't I that interesting? It's like not that long ago, but very, very long, long ago. Very long ago. So much has happened. Yeah, so we highly recommend the book to everyone. Um, you know, And part of what she, as a well-educated, white-collar, upper-class woman, part of what she encountered in her experience was, I think the ghost of Illichian gender alive but not really well in blue collar America (laughs) Um, she was able to see the inevitability of social gender how it can't really be eradicated it can only be quashed and neglected and ignored Um, and she saw the trade-offs involved in the modern world and what they mean for us as sexed and gendered beings but it's really sad because this experiment did a number on her like it on the on the good side like it increased her compassion for men and by reading it, increased my compassion for men. But it also kind of messed with her head. And by the end of her time, and she quit early. I think she was aiming for two years. Oh. But she couldn't do it. Like, she stopped at a year and a half. She admitted herself to an institution because she felt suicidal, inhabiting the male perspective and experience. And she just never recovered from it. 
And um, this summer, she went to Switzerland and she committed assisted suicide there at the age of 53, which is so young. Talk about medical abuse. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because that's the thing about medical abuse is that no matter how many doctors say no, because in Switzerland, that's generally not, even in a state that allows legal euthanasia, that's not what it's for. Like, typically... Yeah, for mental health issues. Or for mental health issues where they're... Um, where there's treatments that you can still try. But it only takes one person to say yes. That's right. And then there's no going back. Yeah. Yeah. In this case. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really sad. And it it just makes reading the book all the more heavy and meaningful to just feel the weight of what she what she suffered and went through attempting to do that. You know? Yeah. It became a crisis. And I don't think she could have anticipated that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Mm. So, why do we love this book? Because it's fascinating, because it's so down-to-earth, because it's so free of the current sex denialism bullshit. Mm -hmm. And it's... What I really like about it is how you can read gender, which if you haven't read that book yet, why are you listening to our podcast? (laughs) It's a, it's a book you can read along with Illich's gender, and it kind of is like the sort of, you know, Illich is the very academic, mm-hmm. intellectual framing of this topic, and Vincent is the, like, rubber meets the road. You yes. can Because some of the things she stories. said are, like, literally in <laughs> Illich, and you're like, yeah, I know! That's right, but she discovered it through living it. Yes. Through having those experiences, and she's saying the same exact thing that he was kind of... Not just theorizing about, he was smart, but yes, he's doing the armchair thing, and she's on the street figuring it out, and it's the same conclusion, which is fascinating. So, Nora Vincent knows gender is a category, not an identity. Mm -hmm. All right, so here's the first quote from Nora Vincent. I have always been and remain fascinated, puzzled, and even disturbed at times by gender both as a cultural and a psychological phenomenon whose boundaries are both mysteriously fluid and rigid. Culturally speaking, I have always lived as my truest self somewhere on the boundary between masculine and feminine, and living there has made this project more immediate and meaningful to me. I began my journey with a fairly naive idea about what to expect. I thought that passing was going to be the hardest part, but it wasn't at all. I did that far more easily than I thought I would. The difficulty lay in the consequences of passing and that I had not even considered. As I lived snippets of a male life, one part of my brain was duly taking notes and making observations, intellectualizing the raw material of Ned's experience, and another part of my brain, the subconscious part, was taking blows to the head, and eventually those injuries caught up with me. I love this quote because it immediately shifts the focus of the book towards the danger of crossing a boundary. Mm. Even when that boundary is, when pushed, more porous than one might have believed. It's possibly too easy to pass as the other sex, Hmm. for a certain part of the population anyway. And that's why the social reinforcement around it is so strong. Because it is harmful. Hmm. I mean, there there are laws, were laws, are laws, I mean, some of these laws might have been sort of forgotten about. But travesty is a crime. Really? I mean, part part of that is like misogyny. I mean, part of that is like, if women aren't allowed to do this thing, 
don't dress like a man to do the thing. I mean, you have stories from the 19th century about women pretending to be a man in order to gain entry to, like, medical schools or yeah. medical careers. So I, it's part of it is misogyny. But the other side of it is that it's it's dangerous because you can induce women to do things in the company of who they assume are women. Yeah. And if you're a male, that's you're taking advantage. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I as I said, I, I don't, I don't think Vincent knew she was playing with fire. Mm-hmm. I'm reasonably sure that if she had known in advance what the consequences were going to be for her, mm-hmm. they were going to be dire, fatal. We might consider. Mm-hmm. I think she would have just left well enough alone. Yeah. Because it's interesting. Because this boundary, the uh, we. Someday we should do another episode of, about masculinity and femininity. Mm-hmm. Because I think what her experience shows is that the boundary between men and women, when you consider them on as gender, are totally separate from how masculine or feminine any given member of any sex, either sex is. Right. Like, being more masculine does not make you closer to a man. That's no, the thing that people misunderstand. Yeah. It's just a, it's a, it's a, that's what personality is. Yes. And that, but the appraisal of something being more feminine or more masculine when you have removed the sort of restriction that Illich talks about against, you know, doing a thing that crosses the gender boundary, it's not appropriate to use those terms because they don't signify what they really should signify. There's a variation in our personalities that has nothing to do with the line can be very clear, mm-hmm. even if, you know, somebody is very uh, mild-mannered and flamboyant and someone is very macho and brusque. Yeah. Like, that doesn't affect at all what side of the exactly. gender boundary they're on. Exactly. And, yeah. and so we have this real misconception, because she says the boundary between masculine and feminine, it's not how you behave. Mm. Like, I think she comes to realize to her own detriment that... It's not about becoming more masculine. It's about stepping into the other category. And that is, like, not allowed. Right. I mean... Yeah. Part of my brain, the subconscious part, was taking blows to the head. So that that really does imply this harm that comes from inhabiting a world that you're not allowed... That you're not allowed to be in. Yeah. So it's not about saying you can't be butch. It's not about saying you can't be gay. Right, not about any of those, of those things. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it was really heartening, yeah. actually, to see hear her talk about knowing she's female, even though she's a bush lesbian. Yes. But it's not talked too. about enough. That's right. Not talked about That's enough. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's this fascinating thing. The idea that on the surface, one might be able to pass as the other sex for a time, but that the consequences of living on the other side of the gender divide could hurt you. It kind of conveys this, like, fish-out-of-water idea. The sense that men and women really are different creatures almost and that a long-term crossing over is not really possible like you can't live over there right like it it will wear and not because you can't masquerade as the other sex but because you don't fit there you don't belong there right right yeah it's literally a fish out of water it's not your environment you can't thrive there so 
For a woman to inhabit a man's world, playing the man's part, that subjected her to months of subconscious blows to the head, right? And right, and like you said, as, as a bush lesbian. So it's not like, well, she wasn't masculine enough. It's like, no. for a woman, she was as, kind of as masculine as they come, right? So it, it's not like she was some girly girl. She wasn't stereotypical Barbie trying she to... She was not. She was not even weird Barbie. No. <laughs> no, not at all. Like, she was a tomboy who wore male Halloween costumes as a child and who kept up with her brothers, right? Like... Which just goes to show that butch lesbians and tomboys and masculine women are women. They are not men. Right. <laughs> and your relationship to gender is not a stereotype. God, it's so right. awful. All the comments are like, oh, gender is just about roles and stereotypes. It's like, no, mm. it's not. It's about something way bigger than that. Yeah. And But, like, capitalism just gets in front of people's faces and is like, I can't see anything. Right. Right. Can't see anything except my own desires. <laughs> yeah. Nora Vincent knows the category of male is real, as in it comes from reality, not from social convention or cultural imagination. All right. Once you do this quote. Okay. <laughs> Even at my burliest, next to these men in the bowling alley, I felt like a petunia strapped to a popsicle stick. <laughs> I was surrounded by men who had cement dust in their hair and sawdust under their fingernails. They had nicotine salad faces that looked like ritual masks, and their hands were as tough and, and scarred as falcon gloves. These were men who, as one of them told me later, had been shoveling shit their whole lives. Looking at them, I thought, it's at times like these when the term real man really hits home with you, and you understand in some elemental way that the male animal is definitely not a social construct. <laughs> There's yeah. a physicality to gender that yeah. I think industrialization now hides from us, yeah. especially in upper classes, upper yes, middle class, this upper is class. a class-based thing. This yeah. is a class-based thing. These men who think they are women, the sex-denying, perverty, confused men... Part of that is because in terms of what is expected from their bodies, they can, in fact, be women mm -hmm. in that, in the yeah. sort of, like, gender productivity mm -hmm. meaning, in that they can avoid hard physical labor their entire lives. Yeah. And, I mean, it's not a coincidence that there's a very high percentage of sex-denying men in programming. In, yeah, I in, in IT. Yeah. In IT. Where it's well, all extracted IT programming. from the body. Because yeah. it doesn't matter. It's right. brain work. Yep. Although, I mean, you know, I want to just give a caveat that yeah. I expect that I, that, you know, this is a recent phenomenon in general, this idea of laboring with your mind. Yeah. Because I think until very recently, most women did work that we'd call hard work now. Yeah, that's true. But not like men did. Right. Yeah, your point. Holds. And men still do all that work. Oh, yeah. And the idea that you can, you can just name that difference away is such bullshit. Agreed. You can only name it away if you're not doing anything that involves the body. Right. Right. Yeah, and I could really relate to this moment of Nora's realization about the term real man because I've, I've had that myself. Like, I grew up in a very academic bookish family. Like, my dad was not the kind who, like, fixed broken things around the house or rode a big lawnmower or went hunting. He was the professor type whose bookshelves were all like two rows deep. You know, there's like the first row where you can see the spines, mm -hmm. and there's the second row behind because he ran out of space. So, the scholarly life of the mind that was a particular flavor of masculinity that I grew up around. 
And it wasn't until much later on in life when I actually had to start learning practical handyman skills to like fix up my own house or when I had to start hiring contractors, plumbers, electricians, drywallers, arborists, piano movers, pest control, you know, that I realized the physicality of this other type of masculinity, which goes by the term real man, you know, though, though I think, of course, scholars and professors are real men too, but that that language is used that term real man is specifically referring to this physical grit and strength and handiness and pain tolerance i think too it's kind of a weight bearing and and practically oriented masculinity that i find myself so humbled by mm-hmm. and kind of in awe of, the, of that kind of masculinity it would come in really handy when you're trying to fix your sink yes <laughs> yeah. just that upper body strength yeah yeah i mean like i feel my own weakness and ignorance and inadequacy when I'm around that kind of a man and like I can hold my own in a room full of male nerds like at a book club and a conversation totally comfortable but not in a room full of construction workers <laughs> not if we're trying to fix some practical problem but like with a machine if you asked me to write a 20 page paper I'd feel confident I feel smart if you ask me to fix my toilet or my car or to build something forget it so I, I have this deep respect for the male animal, as Vincent says, which is not a social construct. And that's the, in this physical labor part of it, it's like a remnant of gender. Mm. Because yes. it's only men who do those jobs. Like yeah. how many female garbage workers do you know? How many female contractors do you know? How many female plumbers do you know? Electricians. Like, I've these are gender occupations. <laughs> and it's not to say that... You can't be an electrician as a woman, or you can't be a plumber, or you can't be a garbage worker. But, I mean, hello, reality. Yeah. (laughs) I don't really think... I don't understand society's fetish about having women do all the jobs in some sort of, like, search for equality. I mean, if it's going to wreck the dynamic of an army unit or a firehouse... I don't... Like, why do women have to be firefighters? It, it, we're just obsessed with this idea of gender as a limit, as an individual limitation. And it's like, I'm sorry, but in reality, there are limitations. Like, have you ever, remember I sent you those videos about this guy, his name is like Peter Centello or some vaguely Italian name. The guy who goes and visits all these communities in America. And oh, I think partly around... Amish? He, that guy? Or no? Yeah, it's that guy. Okay. But he does videos in all sorts of, like, what he calls, like, hidden America. Oh, like cool. Like, these niche communities that people often don't know about, or they know the wrong things about. Oh. I mean, he's... So he spent this time with the Amish, and... I mean, that is whole fascinating, and I won't go down that wormhole. But it occurred to me, at some point, watching all these videos, that a woman could not do that. Because of the, the relationships that he's forming with generally the men who are his entryway into these communities, he can't do that as a woman. It wouldn't work. Mm. I mean, that's real life. Like, you can't just sit in your ivory tower and, like, be like, oh, it's so sad, we need to remake the world so a woman can do the same things as a man. It's like, really? Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. It's trade-offs, right? Yeah. You know? But, you know, you, there was this, I was going to write a podcast, a uh, podcast, I was going to write a substack about this a long time ago, and I never did, about, do you remember the, the woman journalist who got on that guy's submarine and he murdered her? <gasps> no. Oh, you don't remember this? No. 
Okay, well, of course I have no names. Show notes! <laughs> but there was this journalist who'd gone all around the world doing all those things, and there was this guy who was kind of this eccentric guy who built this submarine, this homemade submarine, and he invited her to come on it, and he was like, he was a sociopath, and he was just waiting for this crime of opportunity, oh and he gosh. murders her on the submarine, and it's oh. this whole thing where he tries to lie about it, and it's like, and, you know... She was murdered because he was a sexual sociopath and she was a woman. Like, he was not going to take a man on the submarine and murder him. No. Because that's not what he's interested in. Yeah. And it's like, this is like, I feel terrible about that. And obviously, you know, he's a horrible person and he committed a crime. But this idea that we should aspire to a world where that's not going to happen is bullshit. Because a sexual sociopath is going to find a victim based on the victim class he's looking at. And a sexual sociopath, most of them are straight guys, Mm -hmm. because most men are straight, right, is going to find a woman victim. And if you, if you, just this idea that you can think this away, that you can just wish it not true, it's like, I don't want to operate in that world. That's a dumb world. And like, Mm -hmm. she has this idea that she, this, I'm putting thoughts into the victim's head. Mm -hmm. But clearly she existed in this world where she thought that she could take a risk to be alone with a man on a submarine. And it's true, probably a hundred times, like a thousand, nine hundred and ninety-nine, maybe almost like nine thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine times out of ten thousand, she would have been fine. Because there are not that many sexual sociopaths, murderous sexual sociopaths out there. Uh But... It's like what my husband used to tell me about COVID. Each time you go out or do something, you take a risk. Mm-hmm. And if, and how risk multiplies, it's like you just multiply the fractions. Yes. And if you multiply enough fractions, no matter how small each individual risk is, eventually you get to one. You yeah. get to, you will get COVID. Right. So it's not about the, the risk of each time. It's yes. about if you just do it enough, eventually right. it's happening. Right. We need to live in a world where we acknowledge this, this, that we can't fix this. There's no progress to this, to beyond this. Mm -hmm. And I can't stand it when people think that it's like, we can get there if we just re-educate or legislate or it just drives me insane Yeah, because it's not reality. Mm -hmm. The reality is that if you were born male or born female, you're going to have a different experience. Yes. Yeah. And so the structure of gender accepts that and then finds creative, localized ways to work with that. Right. And some crazy surgeon trying to put make a penis for a woman is like the ultimate pinnacle medical, the ultimate expression of how harmful and stupid and futile and exploitative to deny that reality is. Yes. Yeah. It's gross. And it's frightening. Mm. It's frightening. Mm. Anyway, that's my emotional rant. (laughs) So, Nora Vincent understands how modernity has complicated gender relations. The women I dated wanted a man to be confident. They wanted, in many ways, to defer to him. I could feel that on many dates, the unspoken desire to be held up and led, whether in conversation or even in physical space, and at times, it made me feel quite small in my costume, like a young man must feel when he's just coming of age and he's suddenly expected to carry the world under his arm like a football. 
They wanted someone, they said, who could pin them to the bed, or, as one woman put it, someone who could drive the bus. Yet, as much as these women wanted a take-control man, at the same time, they wanted a man who was vulnerable to them, a man who would show his colors and open his doors, someone expressive, intuitive, attuned. This I was in spades, and I always got points for it. But feeling the pressure to be that other world-bestriding colossus at the same time made me feel very sympathetic toward heterosexual men. Not only because living up to Caesar is an immensely heavy burden to bear, but because trying to be a sensitive New Age guy at the same time is pretty well impossible. If women are trapped by the whore Madonna complex, men are equally trapped by this warrior minstrel complex. What's more, while a man is expected to be modern, that is, to support feminism in all its particulars, to see and treat women as equals in every respect, he is, on the other hand, often still expected to be traditional at the same time, to treat a lady like a lady, to lead the way, and pick up the check. I love the way she writes. <laughs> what Vincent is describing here is part of the main function of gender. Expectations you can count on. Yes. A lot of the work that gender does is to require men and women to act and even feel a certain way toward one another. Mm-hmm. And this is where, this is why this discussion really is a discussion about virtue. Yes. Because we raise our children, in theory, mm-hmm. to... to believe that this is a must. That's right. You must behave. Yeah, you must do this. <laughs> have you, good you have an obligation because you are this and because this other person is that. That's right. You must. Exactly. There had to be boundaries, and I think we have a misunderstanding of how those boundaries have interacted and are still interacting with notions of personal personal identity, especially in terms of what feminism has understood as women's liberation. Mm. Feminism was necessary, but it was only necessary because of what had been lost when the rule of gender was replaced by the regime of sex. It wasn't gender that had oppressed women, but rather it's dissolution. We became obsessed with equality because we no longer remembered how productive and functional gender division was. And yet there is this remnant of these expectations, and it's not surprising that this remnant exists in the area of sexual attraction and mating because so much of that is just subconscious. We're just driven by it. We're driven by our hormones. Right. Yeah. I mean, that... This is one of those moments in the book where Vincent really helped me to feel sympathy for men and for the paradoxical and impossible expectations placed on them by women. Be the warrior, be the real man, be the leader, be the colossus holding up the world, be the beast in bed, and at the same time, be the romantic minstrel, be the feminist ally, be my cheerleader, be my emotionally vulnerable, intuitive, expressive best friend. And you know where that comes from? That comes from the fact that women are now they've lost their community of women to provide that for them. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that, I mean, that leads right into this, this memory I wanted to share from, from a number of years ago um, while my husband and I were cooking dinner together and I was sharing something with him that bothered me. I don't remember what it was now. And, but I do remember I had very precise expectations of how I wanted him to respond in support of me. But I had not admitted that to myself. Anyway, he responded in a perfectly legitimate way that was on the practical side. He responded like a man. Mm-hmm. He, he responded with a solution. He yes. wanted commiseration. <laughs> but I got mad at him for it. And he pushed back and said, and I will never forget this, you just want me to act like one of your girlfriends. You want me to be a girl right now, and I'm not. How insightful. I know, right? And I realized in that moment that he was right. I was expecting that from him, and that wasn't fair. And that was the beginning of this long aha moment for me about the importance of maintaining close female friendships. Bingo! And not only because they're wonderful for me and for my friends, but also because they are really good for my marriage. 
And because if, if my girls can be my girls for me when I need them, then my husband gets to be my husband, right? And he can be the man that he is and not feel like I need him to be all things to me. Exactly. It's a sort right. of mating romantic, romantic marriage. Yes. Yeah. And, and so over time, both my husband and I have grown in discernment about when it is that we need support from one another as complementary sex spouses and when it is that we need support from like our own gendered world. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes he needs his guys and not me. Sometimes I need my girls and not him. And recognizing that gender difference helps us to treat each other better. Nora Vincent realizes that the gender boundary is powerful in part because of sexual attraction across it. Ooh la la. (laughs) (laughs) But the truth was that for all the anger I felt flowing in my direction, anger directed at the abstraction called men, I was most surprised to find nestled inside the confines of female heterosexuality a deep love and genuine attraction for real men. Not for women in men's bodies, as the prejudicial me had thought. Not even just for the metrosexual, though he has his audience. But for brawny, hairy, smelly, stalwart, manly men, bald men, men with bellies, men who can fix things, and yes, men who like sports and pound away in the bedroom. Men whom women loved for being men with all the qualities that testosterone and the patriarchy had given them, and whom I have come to appreciate for those very same qualities, however infuriating at times I still find them. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) See, she gets it. She understands that women like men viscerally. Yeah. And it's fascinating to hear that from someone who is attracted to women and not men. Yeah. In this respect, she's the ideal insider-outsider because she isn't a man, but she's also not a heterosexual woman. Yeah. As a lesbian, she can speak simultaneously to the gender experience of women, but also observe from a certain distance how the majority of women see men. Yes. Yeah, she is perfectly situated to do this experiment. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I love that quote. It reminded me of this TED Talk by the couples therapist Esther Perel called The Secret to Desire in a Long-Term Relationship. Have you seen it? Uh, I, I think I might have read the book. Oh, really? Okay. Her, but what's I mean, her book called? Um, Mating in Captivity? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, but that TED Talk has like 7 million views or something. Oh, Super I'm popular. We'll, we'll link to it. But she says at one point, most of us, we get turned on at night by the very same things that we demonstrate against during the day. The erotic mind is not very politically correct. <laughs> and uh, this reminds me of our episode about how the personal should never be politicized and how damaging it is when politics enters the bedroom, right? Or or people try to use their sex life to express their politics or they hamper their sex life in light of their politics. Either way, it's wrong, mm-hmm. I think. You know, but this politically incorrect attraction between heterosexual men and women, this gets right to the heart of what social gender is. We love each other and we can't stand each other, right? <laughs> like, it's equally true. It's that old cliche. Can't live with them, can't live without them. To be in love and to be infuriated is the way of things. Like, this is why we need the gender dance, socially speaking. We need a constructive and stable way to direct this energy. Like, all the things that make us say, I could laugh or cry, you know, about the other mm-hmm. sex. Like, we need patterns of engagement to help us live cooperatively together. And it's, and you know, it's funny, though, because this entire industry of critiquing these phenomena is so new because political correctness is new. Yeah. Like, no one no one thought these things were even worthy of remark 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, there was no... True. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's a trade-off. It's like, 
you know, there was so much more kind of taken for granted sexism in the 80s, but there was also never a question about the normalness of homosexuality, of heterosexuality either. Right. Yeah. And I feel like we might have gone a little too far (laughs) toward, you know, de, like, stigmatizing the normal. Yes. Like, or maybe just over-appreciating the the non the, friend. the non-normal and I don't mean normal in a moral sense I mean normal in the mathematical sense yes yeah the numbers. I mean we why are we ashamed that most people I mean you read you hear these surveys about like 40% of students at Brown University identify as LGBTQ or whatever first of all that's meaningless but but you but the meaning of that statistic is not about it doesn't say anything about those people about those students but what it says is that there is a pressure to identify like we know that you know 10% at the most of of people are homosexual yeah so and it's probably lower so if you know that and we assume because a lot of these things are i mean i think homosexuality is mostly genetic or not genetic but mostly um congenital right and come out that way yep and so if we know if we we can't we have no reason to assume this has changed so if if you take that differential in identity versus actual, you know, same-sex interest, yeah. well, then you can only assume that that difference is because of social pressure. Right. Yeah. So that's not so great. I mean, right. so now we're pressuring, instead of stigmatizing people for being homosexual, mm-hmm. we're now stigmatizing people for not being homosexual? Right. That's odd. It's a, it's a culture of being ashamed about traditional gender. Oh. It's like an embarrassment to be the norm (laughs) that's so weird yeah that is weird that's so self-destructive yeah 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 that's that's not good (laughs) nora vincent experiences an insight about the roots of misogyny the unfulfilled promise of gender dating women as a man was a lesson in female power and it made me of all things into a momentary misogynist which I suppose was the best indicator that my experiment had worked. I saw my own sex from the other side, and I disliked women irrationally for a while because of it. I disliked their superiority, their accusatory smiles, their entitlement to choose or dash me with a fingertip. An execution so lazy, so effortless, it made the defeats and even the successes unbearably humiliating. Typical male power feels by comparison like a blunt instrument. Its salvos and field strategies laughably remedial next to the damage a woman can do with a single cutting word. No. Sex is most powerful in the mind, and to men, in the mind, women have a lot of power. Not only to arouse, but to give worth, self-worth, meaning, initiation, sustenance, everything. I thought I saw how rejection might get twisted beyond recognition in the mind of a discarded male, where misogyny and ultimately rape may be a vicious attempt to take what cannot be taken because it has not been bestowed. So eloquent. Yeah. So, this is a great chance to remember that there are no solutions, only trade-offs. Gender makes a lot of demands, and it sets limits. And in exchange, it offers definite rewards. But it doesn't mean that relationships are always easy. And it's easy for things to go wrong. And when reciprocity fails, the results can be very, very ugly for women. Yes. I would never excuse male sexual violence... But I think at the same time, we know that there exist social conditions where it is more or less prevalent. Mm-hmm. I think that much of traditional gender was designed to manage expectations for both men and women and to keep the peace. 
Yeah. And we talked about before how monogamous marriage is a much more egalitarian distribution of sexual fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Like, right now, we're, like, a lot of people have, like, Jordan Peterson's talked about this. Other people have talked about, you know, hypergamy, how yes. a very small percentage of men, because of their access to resources, whether it's material resources or just their gift, they're just genetically endowed with mm-hmm. good looks or whatever, or high status or whatever, they can have lots of women. And that excludes, and then you have the counterpoint to that is all the incels. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I like, I like the way you said it, that, that traditional gender was designed to keep the peace. I think uh, maybe Illich uses the word truce for it, mm. which helps to conjure this image of let's lay down our arms even if we don't fully understand one another or see eye to eye. And and truce also captures the sense of the latent power inherent to both genders. Like We have the potential to deeply harm each other just in different ways. And this statement of Vincent's that women have a lot of power, I feel like that's a good balancing out compared to Andrea Dworkin's perspective, which we explored in the last episode. Dworkin was also a lesbian, but she'd been horrifically abused, and so she was extremely aware of male power. But she didn't seem to recognize male vulnerability or female power. Because female women have no power against unvirtuous males. Except the protection of other virtuous males. That's true. <laughs> That's true. But Vincent captures over and over in her book the, the vulnerability of men and how much they try to hide it and compensate for it and the power that women have to make men feel small and worthless. You know, many women have this power without realizing they have it. So they hurt men casually, accidentally, obliviously. Like Vincent says, an execution so lazy, so effortless, right? And I think this book can be a real eye-opener for women in this regard. And it's, it's also unvirtuous women who are doing that, too. Yes, that's right. Yeah. One, one of my favorite scenes in the book happens in this chapter on dating when Ned is on a date with a woman whose name I can't recall. Maybe you can think of it. Show notes! <laughs> but Ned, or Nora, you know, shows this moment of vulnerability towards this woman. Ned holds out a hand on the bar, like this, towards her, this, this gesture of openness, of request. This kind of, it's a very gentle gesture of please, like of I need. And the woman is gracious and generous, and she reaches out and she takes Ned's hand and holds it and gives it a squeeze and flashes a smile. You know, and Ned experiences in that he experiences that she experiences that moment as this beautiful condescension, this act of grace, like a gift. It was truly an expression of male vulnerability and female power. And unlike most of Ned's other dates, who could sometimes be callous and cold at times, this woman was warm and gentle and kind. That scene actually moved me to tears. It was very beautiful the way that Vincent describes what it felt like after so many bad dates and so many rejections to be treated with just, you know, it's not like the woman saying, I love you. Let's get married or something, but just right. the, the just, gentleness of like, like, you know, Ned made a bid mm-hmm. and she responded right. right away with warmth. Yeah. And it meant so much. It just meant so much. I, I just love this picture of the power of woman, whether she chooses to be cold or whether she chooses to be warm. She's like the sun. You know that song, Ain't No Sunshine When mm-hmm. She's Gone? It's not warm when she's away. I mean, it's even Shakespeare, right? Like, what does Romeo say? But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Right? Like, that's the poetry of gender. Like, that was a beautiful gendered moment between them at the bar. The holding out the hand and the, the grasping, the squeeze. It's like, that's how it's supposed to be between men and women. That's the happy path, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think I read the last one. Okay, okay. 
Nora Vincent realizes there are social downsides to being a man. This is from the, her experience when she went to the monastery. The monks' need for affection and touch and companionship and compassion were making themselves felt. But they were socialized men. They didn't know how to talk to each other about much of anything at all, let alone their feelings. And who could blame them? That, in our culture, has traditionally been the feminine role and it has not yet been entirely bred out of us. Women are still often the communicators, the interlocutors between men and themselves, men and their children, and even men and each other. Observing the monks, I couldn't help thinking that without the connective tissue, without the feminizing influence, these guys were like bumper cars trying to merge. <laughs> Again, it's trade-offs, right? And one of the trade-offs of the boundaries of gender is the distortions possible within single-sex spaces, especially yeah. male-only spaces. Yeah. I think we need single-sex spaces and mixed-sex spaces, mm -hmm. and what we do not need is this lie that there are just people and we shouldn't give gender any thought. Right. We need these realms. Yeah. I honestly think that the happiest people in our present-day society are people who have, who still have gendered experiences. Mm-hmm. I think it's important for women to have women-only support, and the same yeah. for men. Yeah. But if you are heterosexual, I also I think it's also vital to have relationships, marriage is a common one, across this divide. Yeah. I certainly cannot imagine my life making sense in terms of, oh, everyone is just a person I don't see sex. Yeah. Which is what the progressive position now seems to be. It matters a lot to me to have relationships with women and relationships with men, and to me, I understand them as being different and it's that difference that gives them value yes absolutely yeah yeah 100 percent. i mean support and connection are not a unisex thing they are a gendered thing all the way down like the way that my husband my brother my father my male friends show kindness to me is not the same way that my mother my female cousins my female friends show kindness to me like love is not generic it's gendered i like that way of putting it yeah i think I think gender and generic are opposites. Huh. That's my guess. I have to think about that more. But specifically thinking of the monks, it reminded me of something that I'd read by this French Catholic writer whose name I can't recall about all male monasteries. He said that Catholic male monasteries wouldn't exist except for their devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary that monasteries had to have this gendered chivalrous honoring of the transcendent feminine to be functional and hopefully holy places because the masculine completely by itself without its complement would shrivel and go sour and turn toxic. And of course, in an all female monastery, the nuns conceive of themselves as, you know, brides of Christ or the daughter of God, the father, that kind of thing. But in each case, in those single sex spaces, they're structured in such a way to take the asymmetric poetic gendered complementarity into account. Right, to recognize the importance of the feminine in an all-male space and the importance of the masculine in an all-female space, which is just fascinating. So it's like honoring the absence. Yes. I think history has taught us that if you're going to live in a restricted environment, it, it, I think it was obvious at the time that you would live in a restricted gender environment. Yes. Like you would, women would live among other women and men would live among other men. Right. And I think that's still true, even if for most people... Not having access to both spheres would feel like a, you know, a, a cutting off, a kind of sort of unnatural withdrawal from, yes. from that. Yeah. Yeah, and interestingly, like some, some monasteries, male and female monasteries would be built 
right near each other. Right, so there would be contact, there, but yes, there would be again, it would be it would preserve sort. the boundary. Yes. Yeah. The uh, the saint that I was named after in confirmation, Hildegard von Bingen, she had she was in one of those monasteries and she had a very close friend named Volmar who was like her secretary. Basically, she'd have these visions from God and he would like be writing them down for her and they had this friendship that spanned many years and was very very beautiful, but it was possible because of the, the monasteries being near each other. And, right. Yeah. I mean, Boccaccio says they're all having sex with each other in wild abandon, but... <laughs> I'm sure it <laughs> happened somewhere. I'm sure it was... Whether it happened or not, certainly in the popular imagination of the people who weren't there, uh-huh. that's how they pictured it. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it's... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's it's fascinating because I really feel like our society today, you know, discounts this, the validity of these kinds of spaces. Mm-hmm. There was another brouhaha about this woman who had who organizes lesbian speed dating events in some pub in London or something, and the she tells men they can't come, and she got into trouble, but. It's an interesting sign that the tide is turning because initially the pub was like, you can't do this here anymore. And they actually, they actually rethought it and they said, no, you are, you can't. She'd been doing it for like five years there in the same pub. Wow. With no biological man allowed. Well, and and there were some incidents where sex denying men would come and harass the women and, you know. It's terrible. Yeah. So it seems maybe that we're, uh, it's just... Uh, it, it's just very strange, this idea that somebody's personal desire can be allowed to abrogate not only just reality, but just centuries, millennia of, you know, foreverness of tradition. Yeah. There's there's just an arrogance to that. A narcissism. Narcissism. Yeah, I yeah. would say. Yeah. 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 Nora Vincent knows that gender is taken for granted, and thus it's dangerous to muddy the waters. In all my experience, passing back and forth between male and female, often going out in public as both a man and a woman in one day, I rarely, if ever, interacted in any significant way with anyone, even store clerks, who didn't treat me and the people around me in a gender-coded way, or freeze uncomfortably when they were uncertain whether I was a man or a woman. It was the freezing that always struck me most. People will literally stand paralyzed for a moment, sometimes in mild, sometimes in utter panic, when they don't know what sex you are. You saw the confusion registering, or with polite people being surprised, and then you began to see the adjustment being made either for a male or a female, or for an extremely uncomfortable and robotic neutral ground between the two. If they don't know what sex you are, they literally don't know how to treat you. They don't know which code to opt for, which language to speak, which specific words and gestures to use, how close they can come to you physically, whether or not they should smile, and how. In this We are no different than dogs, with the notable exception, of course, that no dog has ever been mistaken about anyone's sex. So prevalent was this gender-coded behavior that I came to ask myself whether it isn't almost as impossible for any of us to treat each other gender-neutrally as it is to conceptualize language without grammar. Linguist Noam Chomsky is famous for positing that all languages share certain grammatical principles in common, and that children are born with the knowledge of those grammatical principles intact. This inborn knowledge, he argued, explains the success and speed with which children learn language. In Chomsky's terms, then, the human brain is hardwired to think grammatically, or more generally, to slot information and stimuli into certain categories of thought. 
That is how it functions and how we, in turn, are able to think. In this sense, I wonder, could there be a pre-programmed and possibly inescapable grammar of gender burned on our brains? And is every encounter pre-scripted as a result? So this is one of my favorite quotes in the whole book. Like she's demonstrating the unlivability of androgyny and like on a mass scale, right? And the inevitability of our need to live socially with gendered norms and patterns. And I think the modern world makes us feel ashamed for needing gender, as if we should be able to treat each other generically as humans without needing to know the sex of the person we're interacting with. But this freeze that Vincent encountered in people who couldn't place her, that freeze is a biological response, both in body and in brain. Like, we need to know who we're dealing with. Like, as she says, if they don't know what sex you are, they literally don't know how to treat you. And while you know, I grant that there are people who strongly dislike the feeling of being treated in a gender-coded way, you know, they might find it offensive or constricting or disorienting. It's equally true that the vast majority of people feel confused and extremely uncomfortable when interacting with someone who is intentionally messing with or or queering the gender-coded symbolic structure. You know, it can make people panic. And confused and panicked people can't form relationships, right? And people who are easily offended can't form relationships either. And I think a huge reason for not ditching, but rather embracing this inescapable grammar of gender burned on our brains, as Vincent says, is so that we can form relationships of trust. Like we need decorum. We need courtesy. We need to know how to talk to strangers. And that means we need to know people's sex. Yes. And again, this is an example of how the argument about it's just about safety. It's just about the limited spaces in public life where sex matters how this is not sufficient. That's right. Because it's not, there is a big component that is about safety because women know that women, they are less at at risk. Mm -hmm. Most women take for granted that they're not at risk of physical violence from other women. Oh, like in a bathroom? Or or anywhere. Just in general life. Oh, I never think about that. And there's, of course, this is going to, your mileage is going to vary depending on what community you're in. That's true. There's some rough neighborhoods. <laughs> there are some, some violent women. Mm-hmm. But that said, it's. I think you're exactly right to emphasize that it's. It's. I love how what you picked up on, and what I think Vincent is describing is that it's not about safety. No. It's about something much deeper than that. Yes. Much broader much than that. Us, yeah. Yeah, and it's about. It's about this. It's about connection. Yes. And that's why it's so sad to see these very confused young people thinking that the way towards connection, they've been sold this lie yeah. that the authenticity they're seeking lies in essentially masquerading. And you, if you listen to Detransitioners, the main theme of Detransitioners is like, I got tired of pretending. Yes. Yeah. Like, because every relationship, it's a lot of what Nora talks about too. You know, every time you have a relationship, you have to put on a face. Because you're trying to pretend you're the other sex. Yeah. And that's not normal because you never actually convince yourself. And that's a lot of what distinguishes the sort of vulnerable, like the rapid onset gender dysphoria, social contagion for among confused, often like sexually traumatized women. Mm -hmm. That separates that from the sort of sex motivated perversion you know, older older man, man, because the man is motivated sexually. So, you know, that it doesn't, these men 
often are just so, so narcissistic that they, it doesn't matter to them that there's no right. reality there because their narcissism is so powerful that the idea that if they say they're a woman, they are a woman, it overcomes all of that. They don't have any anxiety about the fact that they're obviously a bloke in a wig and a dress. Like, right. they don't have that. Right. But these, these women, they suffer from this illusion that they're trying to live. And they can't connect. So they're, they've been told, like, oh, you're going to solve all your emotional problems by living authentically as something you're not. Which would seem like the... It would seem self-evident that this is an obvious contradiction. But, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just so sad. Because you could just reason your way to see that there's never going to be a good outcome for that. Mm-hmm. You're never going to successfully form a relationship when you're starting from a position of denying reality right i mean it's hard enough as it is but you're never gonna get there if you start from you know not taking things at face value or insisting to the person you're trying to relate to i'm what i say i am not what you see me as right and that's like if the whole point of relating is like that you need trust with people then immediately the way that you're presenting yourself to others you're asking someone else to not trust their own sense perceptions, not, tr- you know, to have to, to do this dance with you that is like, it's like everything's in reverse. And they, you know, the, the contortions that people have to put themselves through to relate with someone who's in this frame, it's exhausting. It's exhausting for them. And so they can't, like, it's just much harder to relax and enjoy the person you're with, whatever their sex is, because you, you're just, it's... Yeah, they're stuck. They're trying to unfreeze themselves all the time. It's like that relationships aren't meant to be that way. Right. It's a purposeful, it's like the sort of politicized aesthetic of let's make things harder on purpose because somehow the new virtue is to deny reality because reality is responsible for oppression. So we're going to get out, we're going to end oppression by denying reality. That is some, that is some fucked up shit. (laughs) technical academic term for that, my friends. That is some fucked up shit. I should stop swearing in case you actually get religious people to listen to this. On the next episode. That's okay. They can get used to it. That is very frightening. I feel very sorry for... I I just wish there was a more effective way to counter this, because if it is couched in this moral language of if, if, if to be a morally acceptable, if to not be a bigot requires you to ignore reality, that is a really steep price to pay for political and social acceptance. Yeah. Really steep. Oh, yeah. Mm. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's going nowhere happy. Mm. In the end, Nora Vincent comes to agree with Ivan Illich. Woo! <laughs> I believe men and women are that different in agenda, in expression, in outlook, in nature, so much so that I can't help almost believing, after having been Ned, that we live in parallel worlds, that there is at bottom, really, no such thing as that mystical unifying creature we call a human being, Mm -hmm. but only male human beings and female human beings, as separate as sex. 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 (laughs) Sex with a T. Sex with a (laughs) C-T-S. Yes. So here it is. No generic people. No mystical unifying creature we call a human being. Just men and women in all of their diversity and cultural particularity. And I think that's an interesting phrase, and her book really supports it. We live in parallel worlds. 
And because I think that's true, it makes the marriage of a man and a woman quite the daring enterprise. (laughs) You know, I will vow myself to this person of the opposite sex whom I will never fully understand, who lives in a parallel world, who will always fundamentally remain a mystery to me, whom I couldn't become if I tried. And if I really tried, like Nora trying to become Ned, I might end up wanting to die. It just makes me have a deeper respect for the work that staying married and staying happily married is. Like this continuous exercise in compromise and humility and empathy with a heavy dose of humor (laughs) and the necessity of single sex support groups to keep you sane. You know, and I mean, I think the same is true for all of family life. If you have multiple siblings or children of different sexes, you know, they have to learn to live together. You know, I have a teenage son and a teenage daughter and it is very interesting to watch the two of them figure out themselves not just as individuals but as male and female in close proximity as peers in the same space i mean and and there's so much of marital life that is just logistics yeah (laughs) you know and and so i'm like i recognize even some of the dynamics of my husband i just as male and female peers in the same house that you know my kids as siblings have to work through you know that i grew up with brothers you know that i had to work through with my brothers and so i think that gender still thrives in many families even if in public life and in the workplace, our culture is trying to shame the gender dance out of us. But if you live in a house every day with people of the opposite sex, then you get it. You know, you know what I mean. Different agendas, different outlooks, different natures. And yet we still love each other. One thing that this brings to mind for me about marriage is that it just, it makes you realize that we put way too much pressure on our modern marriages to perform <sighs> stuff for us. Yeah. Like, too much weight. Obviously, there's a lot of investment that goes into a marriage, and there's a lot of time spent in that space with that other person. But the temptation is to make it more meaningful than it. It's like it's like it should be yes. very meaningful, but like not burdened by too much expectation, right? In yeah. the sense that you expect everything from it, but also you should expect very little because it should occur to you that it is the exception. It is your foray out of the gender world that is your domain and into this, like, because, I mean, I think that was much more true for historically that, you know, you probably didn't spend that much time alone with your spouse. No. It's not like you were having, like, lots of date nights and going out of the town and And even in those movies when you were entertaining, like, you would have dinner together at the same table and then the men would go into, you know, one room and the women would go into the other. (laughs) Right. Right, yeah. And that was normal. In Downton Abbey, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, it was this, like, there were times when you were together... And obviously you need those times, including like nighttime, mm-hmm. to make a family. But mm-hmm. it was like the the marital relation in that way was the exception. And I think a lot of this, you know, burden from burden that has been placed on modern marriage comes from this idea that was is so recent, like, you know, late is comes from this idea of sexual liberation. It comes yeah. from this, you know, the people who brought you expressive individualism also brought yeah. you like unbridled sexual behavior. Yeah. You know, all those freaky, horny dudes who somehow, like, took over our culture. You know? Because, you know, they wanted more sex than they were allowed to have in this virtuous context of restraint, right? This discussion is sort of whirling around in some portions of the internet. But, like, is there a right to sex? Like, do we... This idea of, like, sexual fulfillment as 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 a notion is so stupidly modern. It's yes. like it's like no one ever had that thought. No. Ever no. before a certain period. That's right. Even if they were the most libertine disgusting person, 
it still was not couched that way. No. That was just someone being immoral and, and not virtuous. It was right. never like, I have a right to have sex. Right. It's like, another one of those narcissistic, like... But it what? governs a lot of this idea, because it's like, you know, if you're in a marriage and you're not having hot sex, we've placed into marriage all these ideas that have to do with something that is not what marriage is really for. That's right. Which is why it's And so it destroys the institution. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. if you think, if your goal is self-fulfillment and then you suddenly ask yourself, am I fulfilled? Well, then the answer is I have to divorce this person right. because I'm not fulfilled. And it's like, mm, wrong way around no. here. And I'm definitely seeing more and more, like, headlines or like New York Times stories of women writing about oh I divorced my spouse because I was so bored of him or I felt like I had to grow and move on. Well that's eat pray love. Is it really? Uh, We talked about this before. I'm gonna make you read at least the first (laughs) 20 pages of that book. (laughs) But I I say you that's so bogus. And I say you that other thing about this divorcee and her wild sex memoir about it's like it's gross. Yeah it's just not virtuous it's I, I think that's shameful. I think that should be stigmatized. To just leave t- for greener pastures. To self-actualize. I, I have no respect for that. I, and I think it's... Not only do I think it's not virtuous, I think it's incredibly misleading. Mm. I mean, I would never want to live in a state where the government was like, you can't do that. But at the same time, we have a choice about what we consider appropriate feelings to air in, mm-hmm. you know, our, you know in general context of news. It is not news for someone to get divorced and then go have a lot of sex. That's not news. That's just... That's not news. It's very disheartening to me because I feel like... It's for sure that among young people, among adolescents, this idea of being born in the wrong body, is it's for sure that that's a social contagion. I mean, that's... I think it's self-evident. But, you know, lots of other things are, are social. Like, if one thing is a social contagion, oh. so is any other thing. Do you think there's a sense in which, like, divorce or, like, marital fragility is socially contagious? Like, oh, if you know a lot of people who are all getting divorced, Certainly. it becomes more of a possibility for you. I mean, I was listening to Katie Herzog, who was on uh, Gender, A Wider Lens oh. the other day. And she was like, she's married to a woman who really didn't think that she was a lesbian until she moved to Seattle. And then it was like the option was presented to her. Like she would just assume she was going to marry a guy and it would be fine. Yeah. And it, and so Kay Herzog's like, well, in a way you could argue that lesbianism <laughs> for some women is a social contagion because she never thought it was possible until she was exposed to it. Yeah. Because there's a certain flexibility. Certainly with women. There. Yes. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So in the same way that divorce can be a social contagion, yeah. She, Katie Herzog was saying, you know, detransition. Let's yeah. Look at that also that social, be, like, in the sense yeah. that you see people do it. It's right. like, we are social creatures in the sense it doesn't mean that there's not a personal feeling yes. behind it, but it's like you only can do what you, very few yes. people can come up with something from the, just from the inner spring right. of their mind. Yeah. And well, then go like, do it. Like, this is part of why the Catholic Church is a hierarchy of saints. Okay. Virtue is a social contagion. Yeah. Right? Like, if you see the possibility of, like, of love and self-sacrifice and communion and, like, all these good things. Like, if you immerse yourself in hagiography and, like, the stories of good people. Or you surround yourself with good friends. Right? It's like, that can rub off on you. And that's legitimate. Yeah. And then you can gain the possibility of more virtue than you had before because you're being influenced. Because we're always influencing each other. Exactly. Yeah. It's the, th- it's the thing you were saying before about peeing in the pool. 
<laughs> it's like one person peeing in the pool probably has no effect. Yeah. But the more people pee in the pool, at a certain point, the pool is polluted. Yeah. And it can't yeah. be a pool. You can't be in it anymore. Right. right. And our cu- culture is like that. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a, a maybe like a virtue quotient of a society, you know? Interesting. That, and, and we can't, human society cannot function without virtue. Yeah. You get anarchy and poverty and violence and desperation when if you can't rely on people walking by your house not to steal things mm-hmm. outside your house or I mean right. right we're fortunate enough to take these things largely for granted but if you think closely about mm-hmm. it our entire society would collapse instantaneously if there were no trust and no assumptions that's that you right. could trust someone else to act virtuously. Yeah. In that sense, it is like the stock market. Like, thinking makes it so. Like, we're all sort of agreeing. We're all going to be okay, right? Like, I mean, and I, I think of this all the time when I watch kids in my neighborhood walking home from school. Like, mm. two little, you know, eight-year-olds walking right. together. Or a kid alone. Or just, like, two or three little girls. There's no adults around on the street. Those children are fine. I live in a good place. Like, I don't know why it's affecting me right now, but it, it makes me tear up to be like, the parents letting their children walk home from school is an act of trust Absolutely. in society. Absolutely. That says, I trust my neighbors to be virtuous. Yeah. You know, and, and so, and I even feel that, like, like, I pass by those children and I feel the trust of the parents just like whoosh at me. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, okay. Th- that's how the world works is when people trust, like entrust their children to others and trust, you know, and trust one another as neighbors. And that's why that virtue is freedom. Very thick. That's there why virtue is freedom because if, imagine if you couldn't trust society to let your eight-year-old walk home, how, how, Oof. how bound you would be. Oh, then you would yeah. have to have a service that watched after your child because they couldn't walk someone. home. And yeah. You pay someone and, or you'd have to drive and immediately get your child because, right. you know, like, that's why virtue is freedom because it yes. opens these paths of possibility that don't exist if you cannot assume a certain amount of virtue. That's Which right. isn't to say you can indefinitely or right. in all circumstances or like, like, yeah, or foolishly. you know, I mean, because Ned, well, Nora as Ned was doing an experiment, she didn't, she wasn't really screening her, the women she was interacting with for their virtuous qualities. Right. Because she wasn't ever going to, you know, it wasn't yeah. going to go anywhere. Right. Because, mm-hmm. I mean. You know, yeah. the circumstances would not really allow yeah. it to. But so many of the problems, like, you know, there's this guy who, you know, was in this brief relationship with this woman and got her pregnant and she has the baby and then, you know, she files a cease and desist order and, you know, is treating their child as non-binary and it's this disaster. And it's like, you know what? This is your fault, mister. This is this is a case of ejaculate responsibly. Oh, God. Because he didn't make yeah. sure... That she was virtuous she'd be a good before mother. he had sex with her. Whose fault is this? I mean, yeah. and the thing is, like, you have these situations where if you just look at them as the status they are now, like, it's a battle for parental rights and the court is all involved because the court is, you know, obviously not going to deny this man partial custody of his yeah. son. But it's like, we're only here because somebody made a shitty choice because someone was apparently not aware that before certain actions take place, like unprotected sex, (laughs) you need to, like, make sure that, you know, you've checked in to the Virtue Hotel and, like, (laughs) see if there's a room there where you can actually put that action to have it have a good consequence. I mean, I'm sorry for this man, but this is a completely self-inflicted harm. And guess who's paying the price for this, mostly? 
the child. Yeah. Right? Oh. So it's like, I'm sorry. Don't have sex with women who's about whose virtue you are not certain of. Like, don't do that. Oh, it's yeah. it's very disconcerting because it seems like we have these tools that people just like ignore as if to start from a position of like it's really important that I know whether this person is virtuous because it's gonna affect everything that comes goes forward from this. It's like we completely we don't talk about this at all anymore. Yeah. And it just makes me sick. To have these, have you ever watched the series uh, Killing Eve? No, I've very, it. very popular AMC mm. series, and I watched the first season, and it's like, I think there's something, I think there's something happening to me because it's like, oh. I can't enjoy stories about not virtuous people anymore because I think it's like, mm-hmm. it's not because I want to live in a goody two shoes world where everybody's perfect. It's not like, yeah. it's not a holier than thou thing where it comes sure. from. But where it comes from is this idea that, wow, how can we assume that there is no social... that these A show like Killing Eve, in which this um, really, really disturbed, super attractive woman who plays this... <laughs> she's a hitman. And she just... She's like... She enjoys killing people. So, she's a sociopath. Yeah. Or a psychopath. Yeah. And, you know, the woman who uh, who is tracking her down, they, they fall in love. Well, I mean, that I ew. guess they do. Yeah, okay. ew, right? And it's just like, why do we have this temptation to... Why is it entertaining for us to watch the fallout from incredibly outlier, non-virtuous people? Why is that... Why is the, What's the entertainment know. value in there? I've, I've felt the same thing. Like, I started watching House of Cards and then had to stop because there was no good people. I started watching Which one? Succession. The old one? The old one is so worth watching. Well, though, the one with, the like, end. Robin Wright and... Oh, yeah, the and, new one, yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. had to stop. Agree. Right? Stop. And same thing with Succession. I got, like, two episodes in because everyone's talking about... And I was like, these people are all pricks. They're all... Yeah. They're awful. I can't... Right. I was like... I have to, if I'm going to watch a story, I have to be rooting for somebody. Yeah, I have to exactly. care. Yes. And for me to care, there has to be virtue somewhere. Yes. Even if it's like the possible trajectory and it's just a tiny little spark. Like, give me the spark so I can root for someone to get better. Right. But no, there right. are some of these shows that just, it's all crap. It glamorizes uh, the people who have no virtue. And, and that is yeah. dangerous. It's like the inversion of sainthood. It's like glorying Ooh. in... In, devilhood. In devilhood. <laughs> <laughs> the demonic. I don't know. It's weird. It's very weird. It is inverted. And, and, and to feel that as like a, you know, not a religious person in the traditional sense. Right. Like not, it's not the, it's not a Puritan thing that I'm trying to describe. Right. It's and it's not just from your community or your upbringing. Like it's something else going on with you. Well, I think that there's been an increase in, a definite increase in this kind of content. Mm-hmm. I think this is a thing now. I couldn't watch Breaking Bad. Yeah. Same reason. Yep. It, mm-hmm. I don't understand how this is entertaining. I, I, I just... It, it disturb. I find it disturbing. Like, yeah. physically disturbing. Yeah. Well, I think that... I think your conscience is working. As it should. Right? I think that's... Conscience is supposed to do that. It's supposed to be, like, the moral disgust reaction. Ugh! You know? You should feel that about certain things. I mean, if, if we admit that really really intimate things in your life can be influenced by what you see on a screen mm-hmm. like if we're admitting that rapid onset gender dysphoria is a social contagion if we if we believe that to be true then we w- we should never assume that we are any less vulnerable to what we watch than those yeah. poor girls are yeah 
Yeah. I mean, we are older and we are smarter because we're older. We're wiser. But at the same time, it's like Mm -hmm. we're filling. I mean, this is why I want to learn Greek instead of being on Twitter. There you go. Because there's something at least less harmful. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, possibly incredibly edifying. I mean, I'm a weirdo. I like languages. Well, I mean, it's like beauty in, beauty out, garbage in, garbage out. The fact that the that the killer in Killing Eve, uh, Villanelle, is so beautiful and so, you know, well-dressed. It is this aesthetic veneer of, like, triggering people's aesthetic buttons, but doing it to glamorize someone fundamentally incapable of virtuous action yeah. is a really toxic combo. Yes. Just like, the, it's the same kind of, there's a relationship between that toxicity and the toxicity of a surgeon trying to put a penis on a girl. Yes. Sorry. Time's up! Time's up! <laughs> I will answer it right now. Well, we have no idea what we're doing next, but stay tuned, we'll let That's you know. Right. <laughs> we'll post it. This was fun. This was very fun. Thank you, Acton. Yeah. Thank you, George. Bye. Bye, everybody. Do your homework.